Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. Dot com and definitely check out those shows as well. Marie Benedict is the author of The Mitford Affair, a novel. Marie is a lawyer with more than 10 years' experience as a litigator at two of the country's premier law firms. She found her calling unearthing the hidden historical stories of women. Her mission is to excavate from the past the most important, complex, and fascinating women of history and bring them into the light of present day where we can finally perceive the breadth of their contributions as well as the insights they bring to modern day issues. She embarked on a new thematically connected series of historical novels with The Other Einstein, which tells the tale of Albert Einstein's first wife, a physicist herself, who knew, and the role she may have played in his big theories. The next novel is the USA Today bestselling Carnegie's Maid, and the book that followed was New York Times bestseller and Barnes & Noble book club pick, The Only Woman in the Room, the story of the brilliant inventor Hedy Lamarr. 
Then she released Lady Clementine, the story of the incredible Clementine Churchill, which was an international bestseller. Her next novel was an instant New York Times and USA Today bestselling book called The Mystery of Mrs. Christie. Then she co-wrote a book with the talented Victoria Christopher Murray, which became an instant New York Times bestseller and a Good Morning America book club pick, The Personal Librarian. Then there was her hidden genius. How does she even keep track of all these women? Oh my gosh. Then came her hidden genius about the brilliant British scientist Rosalind Franklin, who discovered the structure of DNA, but whose research was used without her permission by Crick and Watson to win the Nobel Prize. And now she's released The Mitford Affair, which explores the role that history's most notorious sisters, the beautiful, brilliant, eccentric Mitfords, played in the rise of World War II, both for and against the Nazis. Writing as Heather Terrell, Marie also published the historical novels The Chrysalis, The Map Thief, and Bridget of Kildare. Marie's novels have been translated into 29 languages. Welcome, Marie. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Mitford Affair. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. As you know, I am a fangirl, so to be here and chat with you about my latest is like such an enormous treat. Well, you were being so complimentary, which is lovely. But what I was saying before is that what you do is so impressive, especially with this book, because you have so many different points of view on the same events a lot of the time, like different picking up different threads of the same thing with different perspectives, as if you're like jumping into different people's bodies around the same table or something, and weaving in so much history and fact and context and it's, it, I'm like, how is she doing this? So it's, it's really impressive. Thank you so much. I mean, I will say I didn't know what I was biting off when I decided to write this one. Cause I usually do stick with the perspective of one historical woman, see her through the, the, the important arc of her life and kind of explore her contributions and her struggles. But one of the things that fascinated me about Nancy Mitford and the Mitfords in general was the interplay of those sibling relationships. You know, I, this Mitford sisters, for people who don't know, were like the aristocratic girls in like the 1920s and 30s, each more eccentric, beautiful, brilliant, cuckoo than the next, right? And I felt like exploring the the way in which they shaped each other's personalities and destinies was so fascinating, especially because I'm one of six myself. And I have seen play out in my own family how we become who we are because of, in spite of, um, sometimes of our siblings. And it was an interesting theme for me to explore. Fortunately, we don't have relationships like these Mitford sisters. (laughs) Um, We're much closer and not a lot of strife, but we are definitely, you know, kind of experiencing some of the same things these sisters are. Wow. Well, I have to say, normally when I read books that I've when I read books that I book for the podcast, I don't go back and read the back cover or anything when I start. I just like know it's coming up. And so, and so like everything surprises me. <laughs> I do know because those, those back covers are sometimes have a lot of spoilers in them. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was reading your book and I was like, wait a minute, seriously, they're like, now we're interacting with Hitler and she, they're on the stage and it, like, this is intersecting with everything. And I'm like, wait, but I was like feeling really sympathetic towards these characters. <laughs> Do you know, but I was like, but wait, now they're bad. Now they're bad guys. Like what's going on here? So, yeah, I mean, it, and what you're describing is something I struggled with so much in the book, you know, without giving away too many spoilers. One of the things that was fascinating about these sisters 
is that there's a whole story about them, which most people don't know. People mostly think about them and their lives through the lens of Nancy Mitford, who wrote about them famously in Love in a Cold Climate in the Pursuit of Love. And, and people think of them as kind of this like idyllic, quirky, English aristocratic group of sisters. But the reality is, is there was a dark undercurrent to their existence. And it very much reflected the dark undercurrent that was going on in Europe at that time in this interwar period. And I, I was, you know, fascinating in capturing how these Otherwise, you know, sympathetic, like you said, engaging women suddenly transformed mm -hmm. and my eyes and how that happened is something that really fascinated me and, and getting into the things that sway people in their beliefs and then how that plays out on a family level mm -hmm. was really interesting to me. And so sometimes I really struggled with the scenes because as you know, two of the sisters become enamored of fascism. Yeah. I mean more than just enamored, they become facilitated. Yeah. And in Unity, one of the sisters in particular is like part of Hitler's inner circle. And it was like appalling to yeah. write him through her eyes. And yet to understand how she came to do what she did and believe what she believed, I had mm -hmm. to do that. So yeah, it was, it was a struggle. I'll be honest. Yeah, that was tough. I like how you even have the parents sort of weighing in like, in such a casual way, we were like, every so often, dad would ask Unity to take down the swastikas. In the room. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, just like as, a, as an aside, as if it was like a poster of like Ralph Macchio or something. Do you know what I mean? Please take that down. We don't like your Pokemon posters, you know? But you know what? That's a tremendous analogy because she was, she was like a teenage fangirl. Mm -hmm. of yes. And, you know, we know what we know now, of course, about the fascists and what ultimately happened. They, of course, did not have the benefit of hindsight there. But at the same time, shouldn't the alarm bells have been ringing for the parents, right? Yes. Shouldn't they, and, and that is becomes a theme in the book. At what point do you intercede? At what point do you pull your teenage daughter out from the clutches of Hitler in Munich and, and say that that's even if you don't know what his ultimate scheme is, that's not appropriate. That's not right. And, and so that theme of at what point we sort of act on our beliefs, act on our suspicions, is a huge sort of core issue in the book that, that raises its head ultimately through Nancy and her kind of decision making. But uh, is, a, is a big factor earlier on with the parents. Like, you can't believe it. And yet, what was also fascinating to me, and I just kind of touch on it in the book without delving too much, is that this time period, there were so many upper-class English people who sided with Nazism. You know, they saw communism on the horizon, and they were more fearful of what communism might do to their estates and their titles, and they thought they might have stand a better chance at keeping all that with Hitler. And so there was a certain amount of sympathy towards him in this upper class, which is something I was not aware of. Me neither. In the book. Yeah. Just when you think you can't learn anymore. <laughs> you, you open Marie Benedict's latest book. <laughs> well, and that was what attracted me to this. You know, there's been a lot written about the Midfords, and I usually write about unknown women, with the exception probably of like Agatha Christie. But again, when I choose one of these better known women, I'm looking at something about them that is secretive and hidden, but that is important and helps us kind of switch out that lens through which we look at the past. 
Well, I have to say the way you wrote Diana, the sister Diana, the older sister. Well, she's not the oldest. Is she the oldest? No. Nancy's the oldest. Nancy's the oldest. And she's the second oldest, right? Yeah. She's so glamorous. And yet... Then she, I mean, I, I think I can say this because on the back cover, but I was, <laughs> I was surprised since I didn't read the back cover, how, you know, she, she's married to like a Guinness heir and sees this cute guy who she like is totally like in lust with across the room in, the, in your opening scene. And then fast forward, she leaves her husband to be with this guy, but not even to marry him, which in today's world would be one thing, but like, I had to imagine back then, this is like, wait, you're doing what? Like, this is insane. Here she is. She's considered the most beautiful woman of her generation. She has her pick of men. She picks a golden boy. She picked, you know, Brian Guinness, who's stunning, kind, adores her beyond measure, has the riches of dreams, right? And yet he's not enough for her. Mm -hmm. There's something missing. And and I hate to say it, but it's like, it's almost like he's too nice, too too doting upon her. And um, when she leaves him for Oswald Mosley, who's married, right? And it's all over the headlines. Diana has this strange self, not just self-awareness, but like confidence and unusual confidence that she lets all of that roll off her as she proceeds down this most unacceptable path. I mean, this story was everywhere. I mean, the the Midfords were the regular stuff of headlines. Let's be fair. So I mean, who, who are the Midfords today? Are, are we thinking like Giselle and Tom Brady type of thing? Are we thinking Kardashians or is it more like actual like royals? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's tough because we don't really have those kind of stratification of society anymore. So that, you know, they're the stuff of headlines, but yet they're still on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. They're definitely Kardashian-esque in the amount of newspaper coverage there is about them. But they're, you know, the Kardashians aren't on our nobody's pedestal. So, right. you know, right. that, that's not an exact analogy. I mean, they were on in the headlines so frequently that their mother was famously quoted as saying, anytime I see the phrase Piers' daughter in a headline, I know it's going to be about one of you six. I mean, that's that each one of them. I mean, these three are just three of the six. The other three had their own host of headlines before, during, and after this time period. So a direct analogy, I I don't know if there is one, but the level of fame and the amount of press coverage, Kardashian-like. Yeah. For sure. Maybe it's like if Princess Kate had a couple siblings. Yes. That that would be a good one. That would be good because there's more access and coverage. Yeah. But definitely more scandal. If she had a whole bunch of siblings and each one was like up to no good, that that would be about it. Yeah. Yeah. Which would be amazing. I would love that. <laughs> that would be like my future stories. Yeah. Imperial galore, but they're too buttoned yeah. up. Yeah. They're yeah, too yeah. aware yeah. of the media coverage. The thing about the Midford sisters is that they think nothing they thought nothing would stick to them. Mm-hmm. It would all pull off. And that's why they behaved with such complete, just, I don't want to say impertinence, but lack of care what yeah. other people thought. But it does catch up with them in the end. And it, and it catches up right in, in my book and it catches up at the hands of someone close to them. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Buy me a Coke. You know, I actually, I, I thought it was really interesting also how you, how you developed unity as a character and how we see her as so awkward and even her like 
random gray teeth. <laughs> you keep talking about like, you know, like how she doesn't fit into anything and she's just always tripping over herself. And, and you see how she finds herself in this cause. And I feel like that is so, that is something that repeats itself through history all the time, even today. Out, sort of outcasts, quote unquote, who like are searching so hard to find their place of belonging. And there's a movement that is very inclusive of anyone who believes. And so you're willing to believe anything to feel like you're a part of something. That, that is unity in a nutshell, gray teeth and all. I mean, this is a girl who brings her pet rat, Ratchelor, to yeah. bolt. You know, I mean, she she's so insecure and sort of... Uh, she doesn't, like you said, she doesn't even fit in with her sisters. I mean, her sisters are these celebrated beauties and she is an attractive girl. If you look at pictures, but she never has the self-confidence that her siblings do. And, you know, they're, they're merciless to each other. Those siblings, they're, they're like a feral pack of dogs out in the countryside on an estate. The parents don't send them to school. They have occasional tutors. They're basically left to raise themselves and they could be very cruel to one another. I mean, they had occasional support systems and and private languages and secrets and good stuff, but there's also a lot of very difficult sort of hazing behavior. And the other ones kind of rose up, but unity, it created a, a you know a hole inside her that that exactly as you said, that this far, this, you know, really extreme political group filled for her. But what she didn't see is that they were using her too. Mm -hmm. You know, on her end, it was all one-sided. She she loved Hitler. She loved what he was doing. She became swept up in this cause. They embraced her with open arms. And and she thought she'd arrived, right? Mm -hmm. Finally, someone was loving her for her. And yet the sad part of it, of course, is that it was all part of a propaganda campaign. You know, as I mentioned, there was this faction of English society that accepted the Nazis, that welcomed them. And Hitler and his propaganda team wanted to foster that. And wow, if two of the Mitford sisters, the aristocratic, you know, it girls, cousins to Churchill, if they liked us, well, well, there's something wrong with us. It was Mm -hmm. their way of kind of smoothing over the bad press in those early days in the lead up to World War II. But, you know, Unity couldn't see that. She didn't want to hear it. Diana, on the other hand, knew it and exploited it for her own purposes. You know, when you look at these two sisters and the way in which they become wrapped up in Nazism, not just fascism, but Nazism, it's for very different reasons, mm-hmm. with very different levels of awareness and intentionality, and in my mind, varying degrees of awfulness. Right. I mean, Unity's awful in her own way, and so is Diana, but there's a part of Unity you, even at the end, you can't help but pity because of why she's attracted mm-hmm. to it. Diana? I don't know. Mm-hmm. A, I don't know about you, but I have a very different feeling about Diana. If you ever, what's fascinating too is, you know, these sisters were famous. So, you know, I do a ton of research. And so I've watched a bazillion video clips and read a million memoirs. I mean, they wrote their own stories over and over, which were, you know, arguably not totally trustworthy, but there's a, a video interview of Diana much later in life, still beautiful. She's in her 60s or 70s, stunning. And to listen to her talk with that extremely upper-class accent and, and describe these events, that's where I got the Diana that's in the pages of this, of this book, the chilling Diana that's in the pages of this book. She is a 
a singular creature and a scary one. Wow. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then you have Nancy, who's like the, like the Nora Ephron of the family, essentially. Right? <laughs> she, I'm going to have to use that. That is exactly Nancy. She's funny, self-deprecating, biting. She'd be really mean. And yet she, you know, attracted this group of, of social beings and she was celebrated. And yet things didn't always go so well for Nancy. And she was fi- trying to find her own way. And she felt very strongly the, the neglect of her parents, probably in a way that her other siblings didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, oldest, she was often alone and um, she could watch what was happening beneath her. And that I think really stayed with her, at least my version of Nancy, right? I write fictional versions of real people. I'm not saying she was totally sympathetic either. That's for sure. There are lots of times I wanted to shake her and say, what are you doing? But her biting wit and her eventual moral compass do kick into play there, thankfully, for all of us. Because who knows? Who knows? You know, looking at this story and looking at the legacy of these women, I was looking at the possible, you know, really traumatic legacy that could have happened. Mm-hmm. A legacy that I think did, but really we aren't aware of. Mm-hmm. And at the core of that is the risks that, you know, when you look at a, at a huge historical event like World War II, the way it could have played out and how it could have played out. And there's so many what ifs that we often aren't aware of, that we are very beholden to today, right? Things yes. that didn't happen, that that people that we aren't aware of that played a role in that. I can't, it's hard to say that without yeah. giving... Don't, don't give it away. That's what I'm saying. You Enough bad stuff did happen though. So it's like... Oh, I mean, <laughs> horrible, right? Horrible. That was obvious. I mean, I'm joking. I, you know, I... No. Beyond bad, beyond, beyond horrific. So it was... 
it was crazy to see this different side of things, like the back, honestly, the backstage of the whole thing. And also fascinating the way in which, and I don't know that this is so true today, but the way in which high society and governmental leaders overlapped. It's, yes. Those upper echelons of society were also the leaders of society. They're, They're really what, they were one and the same. And so these girls who, you know, had nothing to recommend them other than their titles and their looks and their own wits were able to literally claw to the epicenter of the lead up to World War II. I mean, that kind of access and influence, it, it's, it, it really blows the mind. And yet it really, really happened. So how did you go about writing this whole thing? Mm-hmm. Like, did you have piles of research? Did you divide by character? Did you, like, how did you attack this project? That's a great question. And if you had seen my desk at that time, <laughs> a hot, hot mess of unorganized piles. You know, I love my original source material and my God, there's no shortage of it with the Mitfords. You know, you always want something in their own hand, letters, journals. There's tons of those. They wrote to each other constantly. Most of their letters are public. But the sisters, unlike anyone else I've ever written about, almost every single one of them wrote their own memoir, right? Or multiple memoirs or essays, or, you know, and, and in Diane and in Nancy's case, she also wrote two fiction books mm-hmm. during this time period, which are little known, Wigs on the Green and Pigeon Pie, which are exact mirrors of what was going on in her life. So really it was about kind of reading all of that, creating a million timelines. Cause as you said, I'm sometimes I'm literally looking at exactly the same event through all three sets of their eyes making timelines and then stepping back and writing and having all that material at hand to draw on as I kind of, you know, went to each of their perspectives for those scenes. It was very tricky because I wanted to show the reader the way the world looked through their eyes without repeating the same scene over and over again. So it was tricky, it was rewarding, but it was also, as I said earlier, sometimes really tough because some of the interactions these characters have with leaders of the Nazi party, um, unsavory characters in the British uh, government and society, uh, they were almost unpalatable. And yet I felt like in order to go through this exercise, I needed to do that. I myself wanted to understand how people made their own political decisions, Mm. how they found groups and affiliations. And I kind of had always thought that people started with a political belief. But in fact, what I think after writing this book is that people are attracted to political beliefs because of personal things. Mm -hmm. Uh, As one of the themes in the book is that the, the political is very personal. And I I felt like I needed to go through the personal for each of those characters to understand how they arrived at their political belief systems, some of which were unfathomable to me. And it helped me understand society then. Not that it made me sympathetic to a lot of the choices, but it, it helped me understand it and society today, of course. Yeah, I feel like there's so many parallels. You know, it's frightening there, the movements and the groups and conviction and you know it's just very easy to fall into 
things and not look around and say, wait a minute, like what, what exactly is going on here? Where is this leading? And like, I I don't know. There's just, I I feel like there's a lot of undercurrents at the moment. That that was my um, intention to draw those parallels. And the way in which we ignore the unsavory parts because the rest suit us. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the the, um, the Midford parents are great examples of that. I mean, so are the sisters as well. But, you know, they started off having one very specific belief system and completely flip-flop because it suited their uh, certain personal gains. Yeah. And, and that was interesting to watch as well. You know, the way in which the peripheral players got swept up and, and changed their views for personal reasons and ignored some of the really awful stuff that was going on that they did know about. I mean, mm-hmm. they knew what was happening to the Jewish people in Germany. They knew. And yet time and time again, that was uh, mischaracterized, that was glossed over, that was swept under the rug. And it's so awful to watch that happen. And yet I felt like I needed to do it. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you finished this book and now what do you have coming up? Like, what are you working on? Do you have a similarly disorganized desk? Oh, that's something else. (laughs) Looking at this, at the good, at the bad stuff, you only see the clean side. Yeah. I have another book coming out in June. It's my next co-written book with Victoria Christopher Murray, my co-writer, my wonderful sister and partner um, from The Personal Librarian. And that book is the story of the friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt and someone who should be as well known as Eleanor Roosevelt, but generally isn't, um, Mary McLeod Bethune. She was the 15th child in the family. She was the firstborn free. She was um, self-educated, uh, founded a college in Florida, an, a current HBCU, Bethune-Cookman. And she rose up to become, during her lifetime, one of the most famous uh, Black advocates. Mm-hmm. And she and Eleanor became like BFF, BFFs in the 1920s, before Eleanor was the First Lady or the First Lady of New York, even, at a time of segregation, mm-hmm. when they couldn't even find a place to go get a cup of coffee. And then these two women worked behind the scenes to really form the foundation for the civil rights movement. And people are really just don't even know. It was so hard to find source material for this story because I I really feel like their friendship has hardly been examined at all. And Mm. it's a really important one that we benefit from today. So that's next out in June. Oh my gosh, that's so soon. I didn't even realize. It's like around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just turning in my book for next year. Oh my gosh. And what is that? That it's currently called, we'll see if the title sticks, you know how that goes, uh, The Archaeologist. And Mm. about Lady Evelyn Herbert, who was the real life daughter of the fifth Lord Carnarvon, who, Carnarvon, I can't pronounce it, who owned a Highclere Castle, which was really Downton Abbey, you know, the. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, he was an archaeologist, founded all these um, excavations in the 1920s, and she um, was an archaeologist as well. And together, along with the now famous Howard Carter, they uncovered the tomb of Tutankhamun. But there's a whole additional story about the real pharaoh that they were looking for, which was a woman. And so we examine a whole other part of historical women, ancient historical women, the quest to find them, why and how they were erased from the past, and the role that she plays that really no one knows in all of that. Well, 
Gosh, you have so much going on. That's awesome. It's really well, great. I'm not, I'm not running an empire as well. Oh, so, stop. You know, no, I, stop can, I can spin stop, a few plates. I can spin a few plates. But no. yeah, I'm very, very fortunate to ha- to do what I do. And I, I feel a huge responsibility towards the women I write about. How do you even pick? Like who's coming up after that? Or do you do, do you just have like a list on your bulletin board? I I, I literally have a list. Yeah. <laughs> There's like probably 50, 75 women on it. Wow. Um, and any one of them, you know, if the, if you make the list, you've met my rubric, right? You have done something magnificent that we still benefit from today. And you've grappled with an issue that's really modern in tone and in nature. So readers today can relate to it. And then it's kind of the way I kind of select from that is what speaks to me. You know, if I'm if I'm personally dealing with an issue, I might be attracted to one woman's story over another. If something is really timely happening in our society and it really ties in with a particular woman's story, I might choose her. Um, so each one of them, and sometimes I pick one and I don't know why, but as I'm reading it, I figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, writing is a way of processing our own sort mm-hmm. of struggles and humanity. And sometimes it's by writing that I'm actually processing you know, all that too. So sometimes I don't know till the end, but yeah, there's no shortage of women, just a shortage of time. You know, what you should do in your spare time is do a children's book with all the women and have like a picture of the women and then say like issue that they're dealing with, like how it relates, like just what you were saying, like the issue they're grappling with, you know, how it relates to today. Okay. Next project. I like that. Right. I mean, I do feel like, cause I, you know, my books are not certainly readers as young as middle schoolers could, could enjoy them. Mm-hmm. There's nothing really scandalous or inappropriate in them, but they're often dealing with issues that might not be exciting for middle schoolers or okay, high maybe, schoolers. Yeah. Well, that's right. But the core, it, but the core accomplishment and issue is one that they should know about. And, you know, I just didn't, um, I did two events in the past couple of weeks. One was for a high school, specifically the biology department, I talked about Rosalind Franklin, who I wrote about in Her Hidden Genius, who discovered DNA and had that discovery taken from her by two men, Watson and Crick, who won the Nobel Prize. And at another school, I talked about Carnegie's Maid, which is a book I wrote that's really about Pittsburgh and Andrew Carnegie's Mm -hmm. philanthropy. And, you know, it was for, I was talking to younger readers, really close up and personal. And you're right, those stories do resonate those histories do or maybe it's not a children's book i'm going back on myself maybe it is more of like but i still see this as like an illustrated book but it could be called like what would you do and just like pose it as a dilemma for the reader in each one i like that this is spoken like a publisher (laughs) looking at Oh, no, but you're right. You know, having them look at it, because that's how I look at the women, right? As a lens through which we're we're dealing with an issue or a topic or, you know, uh, recognition, which is so often taken from women. I love that. But it could also, like for this book, it could be, you know, what would you do if two of your sisters were Mm -hmm. suddenly, you know, siding with the bad guys? What would you do? Would you tell? It could even be like quizzes. Would you tell? You know, like would you? I, interview, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's just like an interesting way to get the history. Yeah, you're right. Like that. Um, those books. I loved them when we were growing up. You had choose I your own adventure. Called, but choose your own adventure. Choose your own adventure. Yeah, yeah. Because as you choose, you can see the way historical events 
fall one way or the other. Yeah. You really get to see the implications right. of decisions. Yeah. I love that. Right? It could be fun. Oh, you just opened up a whole Pandora's box. Yeah, I love love that. Okay. Well, you go work on that. I'm going to go back to my life. (laughs) Now that you've left me with this huge new idea, thank you. I didn't expect that today. (laughs) I just say thank you so much for for reading The Mitford Affair, for chatting with me about it, and for doing all you do. No, it was good. I really learned a lot, and I I found it so interesting. I love learning, and it was great. So thank you. So much. Okay. All right. All right. You enjoy your holidays and Thank enjoy that quiet time with yourself. Okay. Yeah. We'll see Bye. if that happens. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 